When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The dream is made real. Ricky Hatt rocks the world. How do you like it? How do you like it? I wish I was 50 years younger and I'd kick your ass. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Welcome, fight fans, to another episode of PTR Boxing Podcast Career Profiles. This episode has been voted for by you, the listeners of the Career Profiles Podcast, and you can go and check us out at career underscore profiles on Twitter or on the BTR Boxing Podcast Facebook page. You've decided to vote for the greatest 154 pounder or the light middleweight, or the super welterweight. And this is an episode all about the career of Tommy the Hitman Hearns. Johnston Brown joins me as always for the Career Profiles podcast, and we're going to be breaking down some of the highs, some of the lows, some of the greatest nights, and some of the lowest nights for the Hitman. It's a real great episode and a real great insight into the career of one of the greatest fighters in boxing history. This is the career profile of Tommy Hearns. So we're back for another career profile, and this time it's the career of the Hitman, the Motor City Cobra. It's Tommy Hearns. Really excited to be doing this one. It was put out as a poll on Twitter about the greatest fighters at 154, or like middleweight or super welterweight, however you want to put it. And Tommy Hearns won that poll with a great margin, of course. You're going to expect Tommy Hearns to be one of the greatest fighters of all time, and surely he was always going to create his career profile, and this is it. So, Johnson, I'm really excited to do this one. One of the greatest fighters of all time. One of my favourite fighters of all time. And a fighter that was always in wars. Um, I'm with you, mate. He really was. He's, he's another one of my favourite fighters. You know, he's, he's just a joy to watch, wasn't he? He had a, a brilliant jab. One of the best jabs in the business. I mean, we all speak about Larry Holmes, but, you know, Tommy Hearns, just a fantastic jab. Um, excellent right hand. I mean, his right hand was, was devastating at times. And, as we no doubt discuss, 
and also he had power in both hands. Let's be honest, he was a, a tall lad for, for, for the early stages in his weight, in what weight he fought at. But what a brilliant fighter to watch, and 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 a great career profile to break down. Let's get into it then. Let's talk about Tommy Hearns. Let's talk about his career, and let's take it back to the beginning where it all began for Tommy the Hitman Hearns. So he was born. In 1958, October the 18th, in Grand Junction, Tennessee. He was the youngest of three children in his mother's first marriage. And with a second marriage, he became a family of six. So, it was interesting that you look back on Tommy Hearns growing up. Because there were so many significant things that happened in his early life. And we're going to go into that now before we move into his amateur career and obviously his professional career. But he grew up... And then he ended up, at the age of five, moving from where he was based in Tennessee over to Michigan, which was where he ended up throughout the remainder of his career and where he resides now. But it wasn't swimming. It wasn't a great period of time. There was a lot of racial segregation going on. And it was certainly a period of time that was going to cause a lot of problems for the Hearns family. Yeah, and, and uh, rightly so. I mean, he moved there. Uh, he eventually arrived in Detroit, in Michigan, in uh, 1963. Uh, and before he walked into a gym, you know, it was it was Martin Luther King Jr. that gave his uh, a major speech, which sort of in line with his father, the I Have a Dream speech, and uh, the civil rights movement against significant federal civil rights laws in 1964-65. So, you know, it, it seemed like at the time when they moved there, I'm sure, you know, Detroit wasn't it wasn't a bad place to go. It was actually sort of booming in, in a certain way. But then it wasn't until sort of when he was about eight in 1967 that they had the 12th Street riot, which went on for, I believe it was like three or four days. Uh, the results were 43 dead, 467 injured, 7,200 arrests and more than 2,000 buildings destroyed. And mostly in black residential areas. Now, although this was in the Detroit West Side and he did move to the East, no doubt it had significant impacts on him in Detroit as a whole. And, and you know, mostly, if you were to go to Detroit now, there will be many burnt-out buildings from that riot in 67. So they moved, I believe, to go to a, a place of where you've got a chance to earn some money and, and get yourself a job and and just become something I suppose you know like we all want to strive to do and, and his mum went there to, to take the kids there and, and do that unfortunately by the time he was like 8-10 it, it was going through some difficult difficult times so you know painting the picture on Detroit itself it wasn't the best of places to grow up in. No well it certainly wasn't and obviously things like boxing are always a great escape for young lads like Tommy Hearns and when talking about his early experiences with boxing. This is what he had to say. So he said he started boxing when he was nine years old. And a lot of kids in my neighbourhood went along to our local club. And then one day, I got asked to go with them. And as soon as you get in there, he was hooked. Every time you walked into that gym, there was always a challenge from somebody. There were guys sitting around that would call you out for a fight. And that was just for sparring. He never turned down any of them. And a lot of them were surprised by what they were getting in with. I fought them all. Even then, I had something. Well, that says, I mean, with with Tommy, I mean, that is one thing he had throughout his career. He would definitely not shy away from a fight, would he? Uh, it, was, it was a great fight to watch. And uh, and, and as you say, he, was sort of, he started boxing at nine. He walked into the gym, Emmanuel Stewart's gym, the Cronk gym, in, uh, when he was 10 years old. And Emmanuel Stewart just, uh, he mentioned the fact that he was always a skinny little kid. 
all all his amateur career, even though he wasn't one of his top fighters in his dream right away, he always was special. He always gave his best efforts and he always worked hard. And sort of back then, what Emmanuel Stewart, he had just started his gym. It was pretty, you know, it was all amateur, no pros. He hadn't gone pro. Everything was amateur and it was for young kids. And sort of around 1969, he would take his sort of, a, he'd load the kids in the car, as he says, and drive up to Columbus and Chicago for the weekends. And they would have sparring sessions with other gyms. And, and at first, out of maybe about 10 kids, Tommy might have been about the sixth most talented. And that were the words of Emmanuel Stewart. So he wasn't, the best of fighters at the time, considering what he had. But he was always polite. He always would say, thank you, Mr. Stewart. Thank you for taking me on our trip. And, and, I, and I believe from what Emmanuel Stewart said is a lot of the kids enjoyed it. And and it was sort of around sort of 1975 and Tommy Hearns weighed around 110 pounds when he actually surprised Emmanuel Stewart. And, and he, he stood out a little bit. He fought a guy called Mike Ayala. Mike Ayala actually went on to win the Bantamweight Championship that year. And he also had 238 amateur fights, whereas and he had 20. And he gave him some trouble. Hearns was a bit quiet, but he always tried hard. And even when he lost, you know, he was always... He you know, was thin, but when he fought the top fighters, that was the times when he really lost. But it wasn't sort of until later on, sort of, I believe it was around 1976, was when he eventually... Sort of 1976, 1977 is when he really started to impress... It, he, he ended up going on to to win um, the, I believe it was the Golden Gloves. I think he won the Golden Gloves and then he won the AAU as well. And it was in the Golden Gloves that he beat a guy that he had actually lost to. And that was against, so in the spring of 77, that he started to progress. And he was in, in the semi-finals of the National Golden Gloves. He knocked out Ronnie Shields, who had lost to a couple of years before that en route to winning that tournament. And the AAU title which he won also in the same year 77 he beat Bobby Joe Young Bobby Joe Young at light welterweight who was the same Bobby Joe that inflicted prize at first professional defeat in his career so you know he proved that it took him a bit of time but when he got going he, he really did shone through and, and, and obviously went on to win some major things moving into 1977. You look at his amateur career and, and I think we all focus on his on his professional career, and I think his amateur career is is very underrated. You're talking about the way Emmanuel Stewart talks about his development over that period of time. You know, meeting guys like Aaron Pryor in the amateur side of the sport, and then you had other names like Howard Davis. You had names like Ronnie Shields, and you know, all guys that would end up becoming either professional boxers or trainers in their own respective right. And you look at another guy who was in the ring with as in his amateur career was Howard Davis and it's funny because he lost to Howard Davis but just a few months after he lost to Howard Davis Davis would actually end up being named the outstanding boxer of the 1976 Olympics and we spoke about Howard Davis most recently on our legendary nights episode the tale of Pryor versus Arguello and you know how significant he he was during that period of time and how significant the 1976 Olympics were now Emmanuel Stewart goes back to talking about Tommy Hearns at this period of time, and he never actually went to the Olympic trials, Tommy Hearns. Emmanuel Stewart felt like he was a year or two behind these guys, so he kept him fighting in the amateur scene, he kept him on the road, keeping him active all the time, and because of of the politics of amateur boxing, it was always going to be difficult for him. It was difficult because... Even though he'd go in there against some of these guys, 
the politics of that particular era, he'd end up losing decisions and actually winning the fight, but then not getting the decision. If he was the away fighter going to a home show, he would lose these fights because of the way politics were at that period of time. He's just this skinny little guy from the Detroit club who was going up there, impressing a lot of people, but not winning the fights that he should have won. And I think that was, was quite shocking to look back on. And it's not too different now. It's still the same. Now, amateur boxing yeah. is still just as bad now as it was once then. And that's quite shocking to see that there's been no major developments from that perspective. But I think it was 1977 where he really started to, to, to come to fruition. This is where Emmanuel Stewart really felt like, you know, I've got something here with this guy. This, I can make something of this guy. When Tommy Hearns' amateur career eventually did end, he actually ended it with a record of 165 fights, and 155 of them were wins and only eight losses. Uh, impressive. I mean, considering that they make losses, you probably could half that and probably take, you know, I reckon half of those losses probably weren't even losses. So, considering like what you say with the politics, with I think some of the guys that were, were sort of the, the main faces and they, they run the organisation, they tended to be from Cincinnati and they tended to be from New York. So, therefore, their fighters always had an advantage, and as you mentioned, Aaron Pryor, for instance, he had two fights of Pryor, I think you lost them both, one is actually on YouTube, you can actually go back and watch Aaron Pryor against Tommy Hearns, and uh, Emmanuel Stewart said it was a close fight, but you know, it was, it was just, it was, you almost knew that what was going to happen, and, and he was always going to get the decision, and, and the one thing about Tommy Hearns was the fact that he, he, even when he was still an amateur, obviously there was a certain guy uh, who, who came through the 76 Olympics and turned pro, was Sugar Ray Leonard. It was actually Dave Jacobs, who was Ray's trainer at the time, who contacted Emmanuel Stewart and asked if Tommy would come over and do some sparring with Ray. I did find from the book before Kings, which is an excellent read, by the way, if anyone hasn't read it, Dave Jacobs actually said to Emmanuel Stewart that Tommy and Ray had boxed at Palmer Park. The whole place was packed. And what was amazing is that Tommy outboxed Ray. It was a workout. Nobody got hit clean, but Tommy gave Ray problems. And, and that just shows you, as an amateur, that he was also called Ray, who was a pro and a very famous pro that had just turned over, giving him all sorts of trouble. Uh, and even Ray Leonard said, the thing is, Tommy was an amateur. I was a professional. He was younger than I was. I never even dreamed that a few years down the road, Tommy would wind up being one of my biggest rivals and foremost adversaries. I still thought of him as a young kid. So even in 1977, not quite with the fame as a Howard Davis and a Sugar Ray Leonard, a bit like a Hagler, same sort of thing, where they come through nothing and, and they had to really force their way in to get into the limelight. Clearly, those within the boxing industry knew just how good Tommy Hearns was. You get into 77, we talk a lot about 77 because this is the pivotal year for him, really. This is the year where he does go on to start winning titles. And in 1977... He won the National Golden Gloves Light Welterweight or Super Lightweight Championship. And he also won the Amateur Athletic Union Light Welterweight Championship, defeating Bobby Joe Young in Ohio. So two titles in that year in the amateur scene really then starts to put into perspective that this guy can actually turn professional. You know, he missed out on the Olympics. He didn't go to the Olympics. So he's going to do it the hard way. He's won two major titles in the amateur scene and he decides, right, let's turn him professional now. And he did turn professional in late 1977. And I think under the guidance of Emmanuel Stewart, who at this point, we forget, wasn't the legendary trainer he turned out to be. This was 
one of his original fighters. This was one of his original guys. Remember at the start of the episode, Johnson, you were talking about the fact that he'd only recently set up that gym when Tommy Hearns just started going to it. So he'd not really produced any major champions at that point. It was that point where he started to become the trainer that everybody ends up going to know him as. So it was really good to look back and, and see the development of not only Tommy Hearns throughout his career, but then also Emmanuel Stewart is a trainer as well. He got his first fight on the 25th of November, 1977, and he knocked out Jerome Hill in two rounds to get his professional debut off the ground. And this was actually only a month after his 19th birthday. Tommy Hearns was one of four crunk boxers to make the professional debuts. And Mickey Goodwin was the main event when Hearns went on to stop Jerome Hill in two. And, and that was a great way to, to start his career, getting that knockout victory. And I know there's some significance to that as we move on in the episode. But, of course, this was a great way to start his career in late 1977. It was. And even Emmanuel Stewart on Turning Pro, it was his debut as well, just as well as those other guys that he had sent over from his stable. And, and, he, and he said as well, I always knew they, as in his stable, would turn pro. And when they did, I would too. That was the plan all along. So he always made sure that he nurtured these guys with the aim that they'll all turn pro. And wow, I mean, as I say, he said it was his, his sixth best out of ten. So you can just imagine the improvement that Tommy Earns made. And, and he fought, in, in, as you say, as a, in a pro on a cronk. It was in Detroit, and it was all cronk fighters from the cronk gym. Yeah, 1977, I mean, he had he had three fights in 1977 before sort of his, his fourth fight, which was sort of the first time he fought outside Michigan. And he actually fought in Tennessee, back to where he was where he was born. So he had the one fight there against Anthony House, was the TK, uh, KO, sorry, in two. And yeah, he, he moved on through through the, through the division. It was the it sort of mixed. He sort of was fine at welterweight, but then he would sort of jump up a couple of times to sort of super welterweight before, obviously, he was just literally ploughing through the division, really. Well, he certainly was ploughing for the division. <laughs> and, you know, one of, one of the things about his career was one of the great statistics about his career when he first started was that in the first 17 of his fights, he knocked out all of the opponents. And when I look back on that figure and that statistic, uh, I, I was shocked. I'll be honest with you. I was shocked to look at that and think, you know, did he really do that? Did he really knock all of them opponents out? He had this 100% knockout ratio, 17 fights in. But along the way, obviously, he had some he had some great fights. He had some opportunities. And there was one particular opportunity, which we've spoke about a little bit earlier, about meeting a certain Sugar Ray Leonard. Now, there was a bit of a story that I'm going to let you tell because I know Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns were always destined to meet. From that original story that you told us not five minutes ago, there was also then a story of them meaning to meet in around about 1978. 1978, Hearns versus Leonard was virtually a take place at the Providence Civic Centre in Rhode Island in September with an agreed purse of $100,000 to Ray and 12500 to Hearns. Andrew Dundee was actually on a cruise at the time, so he wasn't around, but negotiations had all basically been complete. So on Dundee's return, he came back to numerous voicemail messages. Obviously, it wasn't as easy to get hold of someone as it is today. And literally in the 11th hour, I believe it was like 11.30 in the evening, which was the night before the press conference was about to take place, Angelo Dundee, he picked up his messages and obviously he, he made the calls and he, his first words were, are you nuts? We can't take this fight. And then when he was asked why, 
he said Ray isn't ready for Hearns. Although Ray was the more, he was the famous pro. He was the one that everyone was looking at as, you know, the main man. And Jamini can't take on this novice who was basically 11-0. And he basically said, not now. But in a year or two, he will be ready. And by that time, the fight is going to be worth much, much more than we're talking about now. Some of Leonard's camp weren't best pleased with the decision. Three years later, the purses for their fight, their first fight that took place was 8 million Leonard, 5.1 million Hearns. But that doesn't even include the gross, which was 36 million, which it turned out to be. So I'm telling you now, Angelo Dundee was an astute guy. And, and my God, was he a clever fella. <laughs> yeah, he certainly was. So I'm telling you, he knew, didn't he? He certainly knew. He knew that the potential of this was going to be a, a fantastic fight later on down the line. And, and boy, was he right. Obviously, we'll be talking about the Sugar Ray Leonard fight in the not-too-distant future. But, of course, there's a few other little bits that we picked up on his career. I think when you get to 15 and 0 in his career, there was a moment where you actually then start to, to, to realise, or Emmanuel Stewart starts to realise, that actually, I've got something here with this guy. This skinny kid who's based in Detroit is, is actually something there. So... The fight with Clyde Gray on January the 11th, 1979, in the Olympia in Detroit, Michigan, where he was used to fighting. This was basically the fight where Stewart knew he got something with him. He knew that there was something there. Gray, at the time, was ranked number two in the world. And everybody around was saying, you know, this guy's too much for Tommy at this stage of his career. And they were probably right. But this was a guy who was a seasoned vet at this time. You know, a guy who you throw in a 14-0 fighter in there against a guy that had had a number of fights, a ridiculous amount of fights. And you would, I think in this day and age, you wouldn't normally do that. You wouldn't normally put a guy in there with someone ranked number two in the world who'd, who'd only had 14 fights. As, as that saying goes, you like to marinate the fights. Marination of fights is something that's, that's always been a big thing, and this was this was what you would expect to be to be another one. Clyde Gray had had sixty five wins, six losses, and one draw in his record at the point he stepped in the ring with Tommy Hearns. So Tommy Hearns is going in there with a guy who's had well over seventy fights, and yet this was the point where you see a great turning for Hearns in his career because he didn't just knock him out straight away. He went through the rounds with him, and from round five, it was running out of gas. It was the first time Hearns had actually gone past the fourth round. And as an amateur, or as a pro, because obviously you do shorter rounds in the, in the first few fights of your career, and, and, and same in the amateurs as well, you only have so many rounds that you compete in. So, by the ninth round, this is where Gray's experience starts to take over. And, and Tommy's looking really tired in this particular fight, and he's made it to the ninth, and you're thinking to yourself, hmm, is he really gonna is he really gonna make it through the fight? Emmanuel Stewart basically said before the tenth round, he just told him to go out there and box. And he'd hoping he'd win by decision. So, uh, <laughs> so I think it, it was a bit reluctant, you know, I think it was a bit of fifty fifty, will he go out there and do something or will he <laughs> will he just fall at the hurdle here? Was it a mistake? Was it a risk? That's not going to pay off here. And he basically just looked at Emmanuel Stewart and then went out and knocked Clyde Gray out in the 10th. <laughs> and that was the night he knew he had something. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's a brilliant story. And Emmanuel Stewart, I mean, at the end of the day, you got this young novice against this experienced pro and, and he's turned it on and he's, he's done what he needed to do. And, and the one thing that it's been, uh, they, they match it against is it was where Sugar Ray Robinson fought Gene Foreman. The one thing about 
the knockout of, of Gene Former was the fact that Sugar Ray Robinson was moving back when he knocked out Former. Uh, and that's the, exactly what Tommy Hearns done. He done exactly the same thing. He sort of, as he, as he stepped back, he's caught great and he went down. And you don't see that very often, especially in today's game. Very, very rarely, you know, what, what you're taught is, you know, you need to step into the punch and really get your weight behind it. And one thing about Tommy is he just had natural power, uh, especially in that right hand. And we said that at the top of the show, his right hand is as good as they come. And, and he, he basically, he got the win. And well, credit, credit to Earn. He done it to do. And um, he, he almost, you know, neglected what Emmanuel Stewart said to him. Emmanuel Stewart, but obviously from that point realised, well, this, this guy's going to go on to major things. So let's have a look at the, a couple of his other fights then. He, he moves on, obviously, from the grey fight we were talking about. Another significant fight then. It may not see, seem significant in, in the grand scheme of things, looking at some of the fights he was in during the 80s, but looking back here in 1979, the, there was three fights that we were involved in where there was incidents that had happened in them that I don't think even I knew about until we started to do our little research for this career profile. On April the 3rd, 1979, he goes in there and fights 20-15 and 5 Alfonso Heyman. Now, he does beat Heyman by a unanimous decision. This was the first time Hearns had gone the distance, but both of Hearns' hands were damaged during the fight. Now, Emmanuel Stewart blamed the condition of the gloves after the fight, calling them cheap gloves. And he'd vowed at this point never <laughs> to fight for Russell Peltz again. Yeah, again, Emmanuel Stewart, that's, that's brilliant. He, he, he went the distance for the first time, obviously, you know, he's playing the gloves. But yeah, uh, Russell Peltz obviously got the blunt end of that from Alfonso Heyman win. Um, and then he moved on to fight Harold Weston. And Weston, uh, he was a respected boxing vet who at one point looked to have Hearns in trouble. But then there was an accidental thumb which produced a detached retina that actually ended Weston's career. So... He managed to get a win, even though he was in a bit of trouble, Hearns. And uh, he come through another difficult night against Howard Weston, against another season's prime. I mean, 26-8-5 he was. Alfonso Heyman, 20-15-5. These guys were, were very decent fighters. And, and obviously, then he moved on in June 28, 1979, for his 20th pro fight against Bruce Curry, who was 20-4 at the time. Now... Hearns had returned to Detroit. He, he went on a roll. He went, he, went, he went to Philadelphia, went to Nevada, then came back to Detroit to fight Curry, who had four losses on his record, obviously, two of them of which were against Wilfred Benitez. Now, Wilfred Benitez, obviously, many of us will know who he is. He went on to win a WBC Worldweight title. But in, in the fights before that, he fought Curry. In one of the fights in particular, Curry did put Benitez down three times and en route to winning a split decision. So Benitez did win both, but obviously Bruce Curry is going to be a difficult task. Well, so we fought. Tommy did get a bad cut early. Stewart said to him that he was, he was a bit of a, he was, he was afraid, basically, the fight was going to get stopped because the cut was pretty bad. But Hearns went to war and he knocked Curry out in three rounds. Right hand grazing Curry and then he misses with his counterpunches. Tim, with the style that Curry has, you got to paint that jab and hook and cross. And that's just what Hearns did. Good right hand. Staggered Curry. Hearns on the attack of round two. He's got Curry in trouble. Curry bombing and weaving well, but down he goes from the left hand. A left hand sent Curry to the canvas. He was partially off balance when he fell, Gil. You know, that's one of the few times I've seen a punch, a fighter punching while he was falling. Curry was still trying to fight while he was falling down. Hit the kid with heart. Hearns missed with a big right hand there that could have finished him. Curry staggering again, take the short right. That right hand goes crazy. Down he goes. 
It's over. He hit him with something right there. Right on the button. A knockout victory here for Thomas Hearns in round number three. And that again, it was those these these fights here where you were starting to really see what Hearns was about. The Clyde Grafe win, the, the Heyman win, the Western win, although albeit a bit fortunate with a thumb in the eye, and then the Bruce Curry victory, which, you know, moved him to twenty and oh and twenty knockouts. So, you know, well, not 20 knockouts, so 19 knockouts. So he was really on a roll and, and started to make waves in the division. Albeit, still wasn't quite a household name. He was in Detroit, but anywhere else across America, not so much. So then another fight, which I think was significant in terms of the way his exposure levels were going at this period of time, was the same year, 1979. He was very, very active in 1979 literally had a fight every single month in 1979 this was another one that he was that was really significant in the sense that this would help him get his exposure up so on the 30th of november 1979 in new orleans louisiana he faced off with 29 3 and 1 mike colbert now the clips of this particular fight against Colbert were shown on ABC's telecast, along with Marvin Johnson versus Victor Galanez, which actually topped the bill. Now, originally, the Johnson fight was supposed to be on the same bill as Marvin Hagler versus Vita Antifermo, but the WBC president at the time, Jose Suleiman, put a stop to the co feature because you couldn't have a championship fight from other organisations on the same card as a WBC fight. Ridiculous, isn't it? Exactly. So, Hearns' fight was then added to the Johnson Bill in New Orleans to bump up the ratings. So, this was actually really good in terms of Hearns' exposure, as I was saying before I told that story. Because the thing is, at this point in time, again, just putting it into context, you don't have no mobile phones at the time, you don't have no internet at the time, no social media, none of them three powerful things that we have in this day and age to promote fights and fighters. So, back then, it was all about seeing it on a certain network. And in America, they have so many networks for different states in America that you wouldn't always get ABC. So... If you was in the area which got the ABC network, you'd get to see this guy, Tommy Hearns, who was 24-0, and 0, or after 24 and after beating Colbert, then, you know, this is where you start to think, oh, this guy looks good, and then you start to sort of try and find out a little bit more about him. You buy the Ring magazine, you buy the boxing magazines that are around, and you start to know a little bit more about him. So, for me, whilst it might not seem a significant fight in terms of the contest itself and the victory itself, what that did for his career in terms of the exposure and the story that was presented there, that for me was where it really helped him move forward and, and started to get him into the limelight in terms of that TV exposure, which was also limited back in that period of time. Yeah, and it also showed that even in 1979 that these boxing organisations are still trying to throw their weight around, really, because it was Bob Arum, to be fair, who had Johnson and, and Galendez on that bill, on, on the Hagler bill, but obviously... You know, with them, two different organisations, two different belts, they weren't, they wouldn't allow it. So Bob Arrow had to think on his feet, and and, and in a way, it helped Hearns because obviously Hearns wasn't even going to be on the bill at all. He ended up fighting in New Orleans, and I can't quite remember where um, where the uh, Hagler fight was, but it was a good fight against Autofermo as well. So yeah, I mean, it was it was great exposure for him against a, a decent fighter, and, and he he went the distance for the second time in his career. I think I think the next one was Jim Richards. It was more of a keep-busy fight. It was on the uh, Larry Holmes and uh, Zanon undercard. And then when he moved into his 26th fight against Angel Espada, who was 43-10-4, another seasoned pro, at the St. Louis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. Espada was a former WBA welterweight champion. And this was on the same bill as Hilmar 
Kente, who actually won the WBA lightweight title against Ernest Espana in tw- in nine rounds. I'm Emmanuel Stewart's first world champion. So it was a, that was a, a real marquee fight for Emmanuel Stewart, not necessarily for Tommy Hearn, but it was, he became the first guy to go on, Hilma Kente, to become a, a world champion from that famous Crocs gym, which is something that, you know, we... You just you just assume that it's always been there. So it's really been fascinating going through Tommy's career and seeing this. And obviously, Tommy also won the vacant USBA welterweight title as well. I think we'll move on now to the, the, the first big major win of his career, which yeah. we would say is where he wins a world title for the first time in his career, starting off uh, what was to be a, a legendary career, of course. This was where it really kicked in. And this was in his 29th fight, by the way. This wasn't like it was 15 fights in. This was 29 fights down the line. This is in 1980. So this was the 2nd of August, 1980, at the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. So he's going again against the champion, who was Jose Pepino Cuvas, 27-6. and six. Now, this was a guy who, again, we talk about underrated fighters of these generations. You expect that as Hearns had the right resume going into a fight with a guy like this but he did and and that what was you know fantastic about this particular fight with him is that he went in there and he went in there to go to war this fight was only two rounds but it was two ferocious rounds Hearns on the night was absolutely brilliant Kuvas could not live with them Hearns right hands look at Tommy just mittering him with that left look at him looking to drop that big right now particular fight ended with tremendous ferocity from Tommy Hearns and I don't think the shot that landed would anyone would have been able to get up from I think if you go back and watch that fight if you've not watched it already go and watch this particular fight because you get to see the the early stages of, of what was an amazing career of Tommy Hearns and what was also interesting about it was I said at the top of the show I talked about Tommy the Hitman Hearns and obviously the Motor City Cobra. The Motor City Cobra was obviously his original nickname. After this particular fight, he became known as the Hitman. And rightly so. I mean, this Jose Cravers, I mean, it was ridiculous from the beginning. He, I mean, the, the right hand from the very start sort of throws Cravers back on his heels. I mean, this is his 11th defence of the title. It was no mug and he was a banger. He was knocking them out for fun. He was only one guy that heard the final bell, which was Randy Shields. And Cravers went in there as, you know, the Mexicans are like, they're tough. They're, they're always tough, no matter what weight division you stick them in. And, and Tommy was excellent. I mean, those right hands were just devastating. And the one that floor Cravers was just insane. It was a beautiful, well-timed right hand. He had already landed several. And Cravers was trying to sort of throw the jab. He, he, he's like he just didn't know what to do. He was just too big hands. He was too tall. He was too destructive. His jab was just too vicious. His right hands was just so hard that he just... He couldn't. He just couldn't do anything against him, and I, I'm assuming he went into this fight hoping that he was just going to make another defence. And boy, was he wrong! To knock this guy out in two rounds is is a remarkable feat. And 
and a, an excellent performance from Tommy Ernst. And, and the only other thing I just wanted to mention was the fact that it was not promoted by Duncan, not promoted by Bob Aaron, but promoted by Howard Smith. Now, Howard Smith was a guy who called his new company Muhammad Ali Professional Sport. And Muhammad Ali just given the rights to his name. He wasn't involved in it at all. But Smith was the guy who overpaid fighters. He gave him three times the amount of money that nobody else could figure out how the hell he was giving him this amount of money. But of course, this was the same Howard Smith that lost Aaron Pryor, his first million-dollar paycheck, back in, I think it was probably about a year later, or even might have been the same year. His real name was Ross Fields and was later sentenced to prison for money laundering. Now, if you want to hear more about that story, that story is on the uh, Alexis Aguero and Aaron Pryor uh, legendary night, which will be coming out soon. Just ironic that this fella popped up again and yeah he was a bit of a dodgy fellow I might say <laughs> <laughs> when when looking at what Hearns had to say about this particular win the first title win of his career he said for, for that fight to take place in Detroit was a big thing for me we were in the Joe Louis arena where a boxer had become that popular they made the stadium after him it was tough for any fighter from that city to try and follow him so it was very important for me to go up there and do Joe proud he was my hero I got a good shot in the second round to end the fight and I was never that skinny kid again. I was the one that all the people were afraid of. The Ring magazine voted me Fighter of the Year for 1980 and that was a big surprise to me. I had suddenly become so popular. So that just sort of sums up really. His 1980 did have one more fight after that and he defended the title against Luis Primera. Uh, and again, which was uh, another dominant performance. So, in Primera was down in the second and the fifth, and again for the final count in the sixth. So, it was a really successful end to what was a great year, becoming the Ring Magazine Fighter of the Year for 1980. And also, on the back of that, Emmanuel Stewart picked up the Al Buck Award for Manager of the Year. Just as a side note, Primera actually went to the hospital after the fight to have his ribs examined because he got absolutely pulverised in that fight. <laughs> <laughs> and that is just a great way to end the year for him, wasn't it? 1980, so many great fighters around at the time, so many, and for her to pick up that award is, is immaculate. And, and obviously with, with Emmanuel Stewart, that would have been his first as well. He gets his first world title at his gym. He gets manager of the year. He, you know, his young gun, as in Tommy Hearns, gets fighter of the year. He wins another world title for his gym. Things are looking really rosy at the Kronk's gym. It, it did go on, obviously, in the next year, 1981, which was a big year for, for Tommy. He uh, he fought Randy Shields, won a TKO in the 12th round. And then he fought in 1981 on the 25th of June against Pablo Bays. Bays, if I'm pronouncing it right. He also shared the bill with a certain Sugar Ray Leonard, who had a win over Ayub Kaluli, who actually won the WBA Junior Worldweight title. And I know Kaluli, he's a, he's a top fighter. He was, a, he was one of the guys that actually was in this poll as well. So um, if you don't know nothing about Kaluli, he's a great fighter. Uh, I just can't pronounce the guy's name. Um, <laughs> and that was the fight just before he fought, of course, Sugar Ray Leonard. We are live in Las Vegas with the two fighters. First, you, Ray, the eight-inch edge and reach that Tommy has over you. How do you combat that? How do you cope? Just Ray Leonard. I, would, I feel that uh, my experience uh, in fighting some of the great fighters of the past uh, put me in a position where that I know I'm fully well I can nullify Hearns' reach and height advantage. No problem. Tommy, in the Shields fight, your habit and the manner taught by Emmanuel Stewart, your great trainer, of keeping the left at the side rendered you vulnerable, at least on that occasion, to the Randy Shields right. 
Have you changed in any regard? In well, experience? notice, Howard, in the fight with Shields, I did carry my left hand low, and I happened to carry my left hand low in all my fights. And I carry my left hand low for a reason, Howard. Um, notice how, uh, notice that Randy wasn't able to hit me with any right hand when I had my left hand down like that, because I was on, I was watching it all the time. Every move that Shields made, I was watching him, able to do something all the time. And um, basically in this fight, I'm going to be carrying my left hand low, too. Uh, because but this uh, is a man with a strikingly swift right-hand lead. You've got to be extra prepared. Well, I'm here to prove that just because I carry my left hand low, I'm not a bonus for a right hand. Well, this is one of the defining nights of his career. And not for, for the reasons that people may remember, just because of the fact that, yes... First and foremost, if you've if you've not already known the result of this, then I'm, I'm not too sure what you're doing listening to this career profile of, of Tommy the Hitman Hearns. But of course, we all know what history tells us, which was Sugar Ray won this particular fight. And it doesn't really tell the story of the fight when you say it like that, because the story of the fight was a lot different. This was the fight that sh- probably should have happened two years before, but a certain Angelo Dundee, the shrewd trainer and businessman that he was, knew to let this fight marinate because they knew these guys were going to end up making a hell of a lot of money out of this particular fight. And obviously, it was going to go on to be one of them legendary nights and a legendary night that hasn't actually been covered by us yet. And I'm sure it will be some point down the line and I am look forward to doing that. But this is one particular fight that I think we, we need to talk about with... Tommy Hearn. So it was billed as the showdown and it certainly lived up to his billing. It was one of the, the greatest fights of all time. Before the particular fight took place, it got a bit heated in the build-up. Of course, there was a lot of pre-fight talk. Tommy Hearns was basically saying, my right hand could make this the easiest fight I've ever had. It's very possible the fight could end very, very quickly and there were no more than three rounds. And of course, Sugar Ray Leonard he was a bit of a trash talker back in his day. He basically said, Hearns makes mistakes. He tries to knock everybody out with one punch. I use my mind. Maybe Tommy would too, if he had one. <laughs> and that was one thing, Leonard. He tapped into that. He, he kept on using the fact that he felt that Tommy was a bit dim. And it was, he, he, again, you know, who's he looking at? To everybody's favourite fight, Muhammad Ali. He's done it to Joe Frazier when he sort of said the things he said about him. So I think he's obviously trying to get in Tommy's head. And, the one thing, I mean, even Marvin Hagler was around. He was all, never too far away, Marvin. And Marvin was one guy that sort of had his assessment. And he said, yeah, maybe Tommy it isn't the brightest tool in the box, but Manuel Stewart is. And that's why he felt that he had the edge going into the fight. But what a fight. I mean, this hasn't come down to the legend tonight. I can't wait till it, till it does, because it will eventually. It was in Caesars Palace uh, at the Paradise Nevada. Outdoor stadium, built outdoor stadium for 24,000. It was Caesar's biggest boxing event they had ever hosted at the time. You had the WBA, the WBC, the Ring and Lineal, all the welterweight titles on the line. And you had the two best welterweights in the world up against each other. And, you know, for 14 rounds, it was just exhilarating. It was, it was just neck, neck and neck. Every, every round you would, you could pick Hearns and then it'd be Lennon's next round. It'd be Hearns the round after. And it was summed up in, in the Four Kings book brilliantly, I felt, by uh, when it was mentioned as, as a thrilling war of give and take, ebb and flow. And when it was all over, one man was left standing. And, and to be fair, I mean, Tommy Hearn probably described the action the best and most accurately. And he said, we put on a great show for them. 
If you never see another fight, but you saw this one, that would be enough. Look at that! Parents rubbery leg. Leonard has him. He knows it. Parents is ready to go. He's asking Davey Pearl to stop the fight. Look at that. Sugar Ray Leonard proving to everybody who's ever watched boxing that here, yes, is an athlete. A minute 40 seconds into the 14th round, and he is teeing off on her. That's it. Sugar Ray Leonard has won by a technical knockout in the 14th round, about a minute 45 seconds into the round. He is delirious with joy. He has every right to be. If ever a man proved himself, this man did. Well, it was also that particular fight which brought one of the most memorable moments in the corner because Angelo Dundee, knowing at the time his fighter was behind, Sugar Ray Leonard was behind prior to, to going into the final stanza of that particular fight, and he could see Hearns basically cruising through the championship rounds and you could see Leonard was behind on the scorecard. He was looking knackered. Between rounds 12 and 13, Leonard's trainer, Angelo Dundee, said these now legendary words. You're blowing it now. You're blowing it, son. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. I mean, how this hasn't come up for a legendary night, I will never know, Sean. But, I mean, Angelo Dundee one corner, Emmanuel Stewart in the other, Tommy Earns in one, Sugar Ray Leonard in the other. Everything up for grabs of the world away. I mean, it just had everything. I mean, what a brilliant night it must have been to have been there, to have witnessed. I mean, 1981, Zig, I wasn't even bold. But, you know, I've watched the fight a few times. I even watched it again the other night. And it really is a classic. It really is. And, and those famous words uttered from Angelo Dundee in the corner. And Leonard goes out there and, and does a job. He really does sort of, he hits hers of an absolute beautiful flurry and, and to be fair, be fair to Hearns, he did look in trouble. I, I don't know, when I watched it again the other night, I thought maybe did the referee stop a little bit early? Probably not. I think Leonard deserved it. And as you say, behind on all three scorecards before their stoppage. And, and just what a great night. What an excellent fight. It certainly was. And that was a real moneymaker fight. Between the both of them, they actually banked a combined $17 million, making it the largest sports purse in history at that time. Amazing. Again, we talk about sports purses and we've talked about some of the ones over the past decade. And, you know, looking at that in 1981, that was huge because that probably would have equated to around about 100 million in this day and age. Amazing amount of money for the pair of them. And obviously all the major titles on the line as well, which is something, you know, we were always looking for in this day and age. And that, in that particular fight, all the titles are on the line. A great fight, brilliant fight, and one that we'll certainly cover for a legendary night at some point in the future. So, obviously, that would be his first defeat on his record then at this point. So, you're thinking to yourself, right, well, he surely is going to come back and he's going to do something more significant. Of course he is, of course. So, he comes back in his next fight in December of that year, December 11th, 1981, and it was actually in the Bahamas. It was on... The undercard of Muhammad Ali versus Trevor Burbeck in what would be the last fight for Muhammad Ali. A sad, sad night for boxing fans watching the once great Muhammad Ali basically being dethroned and, and, and being stripped of his dignity in that particular fight. So at this point, Tommy had moved up now to the light middleweight division or what is now known as the super welterweight division, getting a unanimous decision against Ernie Singletary and then moving his way up 
through that way and, and, and getting some good wins under his belt whilst he goes from. Now, and we move on now and we move into his next significant night, which was only three fights after he'd lost to Sugar Ray Leonard. So he gets his three fights up at the 154 division and goes in there with another absolute legend of the sport in Wilfred Benitez for the WBC and the vacant ring light middleweight titles. Yes, he does. Benitez was 44-1-1 one one at the time. He was, a, anyone that doesn't know, Benitez, Puerto Rican, a, a magnificent fighter in the 80s. And, and one that sort of, get, again, another one, when, we, when people do listen to Legendary Knights of the Ground prior, he was another one of those guys that was sort of a bit overlooked by the, these fantastic four fighters. It was a brilliant performance from Hearns, who actually broke his right hand in the seventh. But he still boxed his way to victory by just using his left hand. He was just basically using his jab and moving away. And he was boxing superbly with that standing and he proved to the world that he wasn't just a power puncher and it's terrific he was a terrific boxer and he went on to win his second world world title in the second weight division and and i just think that was a pinnacle night for tommy because many people always observe tommy as the puncher as the guy that's going to go in there and knock you out and i think against a guy like wolford Burnett, he was also a very skilled technician an excellent fighter and to, to outbox someone for, for, you know, for six rounds is, is impressive. I mean, it was, it was a 15 round, wasn't it, actually? So it was actually another eight rounds. So, I mean, outstanding, really was. One-handed, busted his right hand. It was a really bad break as well. It was like his, I think it was something to do with the cartilage had popped out. And he, he, it was awful. It was a really, really bad break. He could not throw that right hand whatsoever. And obviously, later on, he actually ended up in a cast. Many fighters today would have just said, you know what, I'm not fighting on my hands, busted. And Benitez would have won the fight, but Tommy Hearns, being the true warrior he was, he continued and won the fight. So, when talking about this particular fight, looking back on, on the memories of it, Tommy Hearns had this to say about it. Wilfred had one of those styles that made it difficult for anybody, but I was also ready, and he was surprised by the strength that I had. I was trying to box him, but he moved pretty good too, and he could take a punch. He made it really hard. That was the first time I ever had to go 15 rounds, which is a bit more difficult. Those last three can really tire you out. It was particularly hard when you sit in your stool at the end of the 12, thinking of what's left to go. I was usually about ready to throw up. At this stage, <laughs> you might not have a whole lot left, and that's when your man can surprise you. If it happened against Sugar Ray Leonard, fortunately for me, it didn't happen here. At this point, looking back on that particular fight, he knows himself. It was a really, really difficult night against a legendary fighter, but this time he came through it and he managed to see it through till the end. And he won the WBC and the vacant ring, like middleweight titles, making him a two-weight world champion at this point in 1982. Yep, and, and, he, and he moved on. And this is why he would he won this poll. You know, at 154, he was an absolute star. And, and the guy he was, he was beating was, was unbelievable. And obviously, with the hand injury... He actually went on, a, I think he had, a, he had a boat and he went on a little a trip on the boat and he just sort of took a bit of time out, put his hand in a cast and the Murray Sutherland fight, he actually barely used his right hand and he went on to win the fight against Murray Sutherland, one of our Brits who was 38, 9 and 1 at the time and he beat him in Atlantic City in 1983. So, you know, 1982, December, then he fights in July, considering the amount of fights and how quick he was having and he had a bit of time off, and, and in between fights, he was a bit of a recluse, and that's what Emmanuel Stewart said. He was he was quite happy to be on his own on his boat. He then went on to fight Luigi Mancellino, who was 43-9, an Italian, back again at the Joe Louis Arena, where he won his first title. 
and then obviously moved on to Roberto Duran. Now, with the funny thing with Roberto Duran before we even sort of mentioned the fight was was the height difference for one. I mean, the fact that Hearns was six one, Duran was five seven, and Hearns had a thirteen inch reach advantage is it's almost unthinkable to think that Duran could have ever won this fight. But obviously, with Duran doing what he did against Hagler and, and really causing Hagler some problems, people felt that Hearns was going to be in for a difficult night. And 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 the one thing is, is that you know. Tommy just had the style, you know, he had a way and he had the size, he had all the advantages, he had the power to just derail a, a, a solid Roberto Duran. And, and there was one incident which, which did make me laugh, which again, the Four Kings book, something that I thought was really funny, Duran and Hearns met at a bank of elevators at the Caesars Palace and Duran said to him, I kill you, I kill you. And then Hearns laughing, come back with, no mass, no mass. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, that's certainly one way to shut him down, isn't it? <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, fantastic. And apparently, you did actually walk away. Apparently, what Emmanuel Stewart said as well was that Duran actually he felt that Duran was a bit a bit scared of Hearns. There was something about Hearns, whether it be his heart or what, I don't know what it was, but with Duran, he would be so vocal and sort of sort of call out Hagler, call out Hearns, to try and get in their head. But with 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 Hearns, he couldn't do it. Haglin and Ed all day, just not Hearns. It's really strange. I don't know what it was, considering what we think of Duran and Duran being this bit of an animal and he always went to get in your head and scare you. Yeah, he couldn't do it with Tommy. Well, it's funny because, you know, Tommy speaks about that night in particular when he faced Duran. As something similar to what you've told us about that particular story. So he's quoted as saying, I didn't know Duran, but he really tried to take that fight to me before it even happened. He tried so hard to make you think he was so tough. He was, for sure, but he wanted to make me fear him before we'd got in there. Those, th- those were things that I thought about, but I also knew what I could do. When the bell rings, all of that went out of the window. It was down to business. I saw the chance to punch and I put my fist right on his chin. But he was a great fighter and I still respect him. I never judged him on the basis of that night with the career that he's had. So, although that story sort of corroborates with what he talks about in in, in a later interview that I'm quoting from, he actually still all, all has that respect for him, no matter what happened in that story, no matter how much he was trying to rile Tommy Hearns up in that particular moment, it didn't work. And obviously, as we know, Hearns was very successful and, and stopped Roberto Duran in two rounds in, in what was a, a shocking defeat for Roberto Duran. And he was the, actually, Hearns was the first person to, to ever stop Roberto Duran, technically, because obviously in the fight with Sugar Ray Leonard, he quit. If you've not heard the career profile of Roberto Duran, please go and check that out on the feed because that will give you a more in-detail story about his career and all them particular nights and this particular night as well. So Tommy Hearns picks up that victory and obviously retains the WBC and ring light middleweight title, but also wins the lineal light middleweight title in the same fight. So, you know... At this point, he's, he's probably classed as the best light middleweight or super welterweight champion of the world at this point. I knew myself that Roberto probably wouldn't be able to set him to more punching power. And once I get, once I was able to get one good punch in, I knew I had a chance to really turn the fight, turn it around. And when I was able to hit Roberto, and Roberto felt my strength, I seen Roberto then start backpowering. And that, you, know, you don't never, you never ever see Roberto back powder. Roberto did not want to come in and mix it up with me. You know, because of the ego, he tried to stay there. But his ego, when a person have an ego, and sometimes it gets in the way. 
or what he really should do or what he shouldn't do. And it kind of got in the way with him. And he just stood there and he just and he took the wrong shot. It was just a, uh, a punch where Roberto really didn't see it because it came from a different angle. The angle it came from was like I was going to the body, but I decided not to go to the body and go right to the head. And he was not expecting that. He was expecting it would be a body shot, but it actually, in reality, it was a head shot. It would be a head shot. Now, the strategy going into the fight with Roberto Red was to, like I have most of my tall fighters when they fight a short guy, to be physical. They expect the tall guy to always be, you know, running and trying to utilize his men. But uh, much like Lennox Lewis later on did the same thing with Mike Tyson, he was very physical with him, pushing him around, pulling him, and making him back up, putting pressure all the time. And whenever the shorter guy starts to come forward, just take a half a step back, just enough to keep that distance, and then to keep putting pressure. And most short guys start falling apart then. They don't, they're not expecting it. But Thomas is... Hand speed really bothered uh, Duran in addition to Thomas's punching power. He had never had anyone that punched with such speed that had power also. And that coupled with the height and the, the pressure that Thomas was putting on him was just too much for him to deal with. And uh, at the end of the first round, he also felt Thomas's strength when Thomas threw him down uh, and it cut him over his eye, and it was just too much for him. And Thomas fought a perfectly executed uh, fight. And, he had such good sparring going into the fight, too. His sparring sessions was with Mark Breland, who was only about two months shy of winning the gold medal at the Olympic. Mike McCallum, who was about four months shy of being a uh, world champion also. And Frank Tate, who was a gold medal winner in the Olympics. So that type of a sparring on a guy from uh, uh, over here that was a member of our crunk team, Earl Christie. So he had tremendous sparring going into that. So compared to the speed of those guys, Roberto Durant, who had just fought a really great and uh, close decision loss fight to marvelous Marvin Hagler, uh, he, he just couldn't compete to what Thomas said, Mike, because, you know, I've always believed at the crunk that we have great sparring. We don't try to use sparring partners. We use other top fighters. Yeah, and, and you know what was really funny as well was Roberto Duran actually held the WBA version of, of the light middleweight title, which he had won from Iran Barkley, if I remember rightly. So he actually held that WBA title. Now, the WBA made Mike McCallum the mandatory challenger. And and they said that if the Ram fights anybody else, he's going to be stripped. So the WBA would have been on the line if if the WBA had allowed this it, it to be on the line because he fought Tommy Ernst. But they were like, no, McCallum, he's the, he's the mandatory fighter. You don't fight him, we're going to take the title. For you. And they did. And it is ridiculous because that, Actually, that fight ended up on an undercard. Uh, it got lost in an undercard of a Bob Byram night. I can't remember what fight it was. And it ended up going to purse bids, and it was less than a million. I think it was like, I think it was like less than £100,000, that fight, mate. Now, considering that Hearns made £1.8 million, Duran made one point six. it was on the outdoor stadium in Caesars Palace. And the reason why it was on the outdoor was because of it was supposed to be Larry Holmes against, I can't remember it was, it was another heavyweight, but that fight fell through. I think I believe Larry Holmes may have got injured and that stadium was there. This fight was actually supposed to happen again in Barbados and it ended up getting pulled because it just wasn't doing enough numbers. So they ended up in Caesars Palace and picking up the same night as what Larry Holmes was supposed to have. So the whole thing is just ridiculous and to think that the WBA would not put their title on the line for Duran Hearns is just beyond me and it just shows you in 1984, 
we still had the same stupid politics as we do have today. Let's move on then and let's talk about <laughs> his next big significant fight. Probably the most legacy defining night of his career. And it sounds strange to say it because this was a fight that he lost as per the Sugar Ray Leonard fight that he lost as we talk about earlier in his career. But this was another night which created one of the greatest fights of all time. It was, of course, the marvellous Marvin Hagler versus Tommy Hearns fight. This was an amazing fight. But this was a fight that should have happened in 1982. They were actually scheduled to go in the ring in 1982. It was all sort of set up, ready to go. And then Tommy Hearns ended up getting an injury to his hand, as we spoke about earlier on in the episode. And Marvin Hagler, of course... You know, he didn't really take too kindly to that. He felt like Tommy Hearns was actually avoiding him as a fighter. Now, before this particular fight took place, Tommy Hearns had actually dabbled up at middleweight. So he'd moved up from light middleweight to middleweight. And he took on Fred Hutchins, who was 40-1, and, and stopped Fred Hutchins in three rounds after he beat Roberto Durant. So that was his little dabble at middleweight before he got the fight with Marvin Hagler. So Marvin Hagler basically <laughs> goes on to say, if I was going to miss out on a million dollars because of a problem with my little pink baby pinky, I'd cut that little baby pinky off. <laughs> that's, that's exactly sounds like Marvin to me. Oh, dear. I, I tell you what, though, when they actually described the break with hands, and it was in the cards, it was a bad one. So I know he was disappointed. He wanted the winner of the Leonard fight and the Hearns fight. Didn't happen. Um, to be fair, it should have been Leonard. I don't think it, he hadn't fought on Leonard then. I, I think I think Leonard happened after this. I may be wrong. I'm sure it was after this. But yeah, and and, and well, I mean, what can we say about Marvin Hagler against Tommy Hearns? I mean, it, that we don't already know. It was basically the best three round three rounds of boxing you'll ever see. It was the one fight that I remember sort of being quite young and and you know just digging through the archives, I suppose, and just thought. You know what what happened before all the Eubanks and the Bens because that for me was uh, where it was at and and Mike Tyson etc. So I think this is the first fight that someone sent me to. Wow, I mean I think when I first seen this fight I was amazed and and again it's it's a legendary night. It's out there. You can listen to that. We have got that out there. I don't know. What can you say, Sean? It was just the first round was outstanding and the second and third round was just as good. I mean, it was just an outstanding three-round fight and, and one I will never forget, and I'm sure many others won't. The man showed his greatness, and then I have to say that it was one damn good fight. What the visit, Marvin? The question was, man, um, what was you taking? What made you stand up? And Marvin's answer was, I didn't want to fall. I, I wasn't going to fall. I was determined to win this fight. Well, I'm not going to go too deep into it because, obviously, Legendary Night, of course, if you want to you listen to a Legendary Night, Hagler Hearns, I know that you can certainly do that by checking out the Legendary Night's feed and go and check out all our episodes on that podcast. So, this Legendary Night, then, he did lose the fight in emphatic fashion. It was an absolute war. They both hurt each other in this fight. Eventually, Hearns succumbs to the power of Marvin Hagler at middleweight, who is one of the best middleweights, who we've also done a career profile on. So, please also go and check out the career of Marvelous Marvin Hagler as well while you're at it. So this particular fight would leave a lasting legacy in boxing, of course. And for Tommy Hearns, it was his opportunity to become a middleweight champion, which he lost. So at the time, Marvin Hagler was a WBC, WBA, IBF, the ring and the lineal middleweight champion of the world. So after losing to Marvin Hagler, of course, he would return 
back to the middleweight division. He won the NABF middleweight title in his next fight against Sam Shuler, KOing him in one round. And then he also then defended his light middleweight titles, which he still held at that point, by the way. So he actually retained the WBC, the ring and the lineal light middleweight titles against Mark Medell. And then he went in and defended his NABF W <laughs> NABF middleweight title against Doug DeWitt, which again was a, probably an underrated fight, which nobody really sort of speaks about when they speak about his career, but it's one you should go and check out. So he, he then obviously retains that NABF middleweight title. And then Tommy Hearns decides, right, what am I going to do next? What can I do next? Well, I'm going to decide to move up away again, and I'm going to go to the light heavyweight division and that is exactly what he did in 1987 he decided to move up to the light heavyweight division to take on Dennis Andres yes uh, and, and what what a performance again I mean uh, I suppose after that Hagler defeat if, if you're gonna sort of you're gonna be downhearted I mean you're talking about Duran Leonard Hagler he's won one now out of the three uh, and it was only the one fight he only ever won to be honest uh, you know, he had the opportunity, light heavyweight, WBC title, and he, he wins himself another world title. I mean, it's impressive to, to, to come back from that. And, and the Hagler fight was, was a big fight. It, obviously, it was a super fight. And, and to continue, it was just, that was just, it was just, it says everything about Tommy Earns. And then he moved on to fight uh, one Rolden. Wins that by a four-round KO as well. To win the vacant, again, he won the vacant WBC middleweight title. So he only had a little dabble in the light heavyweight title. It was just the one fight. But it was a significant title, the WBC, 100%, you know, a valid world title. And and when he did win the WBC middleweight title, sort of later on, so he won he won a light heavyweight title in March, and then in October he won the middleweight version, which was actually vacated by Sugar Ray Leonard. So, you know, third world title, third weight world champion. Now the only thing left for him after this was really to be pushing on for that fourth world title. He did defend it though against Iran Barkley. Now Iran Barkley. For the middleweight title, knocked him out, got rid of him in three. Now, the interesting thing I always think about the Iran Barkley fight is the fact that Barkley had lost to Duran. Hearns knocks out Duran, and then Barkley knocks out Hearns. Now, the only thing I can say about that is that old cliche of style make fights, and that's exactly what it is. When you think about them three, and what I think about them three in particular, it just shows you because Iran Barkley will never feature above a Duran, will never feature above Hearns if you're doing your greatest ever list in boxing. But he just seemed to just have an advantage and he seemed to just have something over Hearns, maybe. I don't know what it was. But first defence of that middleweight title, we lost to Barkley. So that particular loss to Aaron Barkley was the Ring Magazine's upset of the year in 1988, which was the first defence, as you said, of his WBC middleweight title. So he's lost that, that middleweight title then in his first defence against Aaron Barkley. And the next thing he does then is he, he decides to move up to super middleweight in his very next fight and get a majority decision against James Kinchin, where he won the NABF super middleweight title and the inaugural WBO version of the super middleweight title. So then that's another title and yet another weight. Yep, and uh, the WBO was probably not necessarily... It, it, was, it was a title, obviously, now we would say is a legitimate world title back then it probably wasn't as such it was one of those titles where uh, they were sort of handing them out to the champions but did win it and you know it, it's, a, it's a proper version so a legitimate title obviously before you move on to fight for a proper world title it, i suppose it's a middleweight 
for the WBC Super Middleweight title plus the WBO Super Middleweight title against a Sugar Ray Leonard in their number two fight in 1989 on June 12th in Nevada. Eight years after their first battle, two fighters resume one of boxing's great rivalries. Now they step into the ring again for the long-awaited rematch. This time, the war is on. Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hitman Hearns go to battle on June 12th at Caesars Palace. Ladies and gentlemen, Budweiser presents the main event. Let's get ready to rumble! Only word that springs to mind to this is Rob. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a robbery, that one. I mean, even even Leonard, even Leonard talks about it, you know, being gifted that particular decision. So, obviously, Tommy Hearns goes in there in that particular fight. It was billed as the super fight. Another one of the 1980s super fights. So, off the back of, of, of obviously... Sugar Ray Leonard coming out of retirement and beating Marvin Hagler in 1987. In 1989, obviously, he has this rematch with Tommy Hearns. WBO, WBC, super middleweight titles are on the line. And the majority of people felt like Hearns had actually won this. He'd actually floored Leonard in both the third and the 11th rounds of the fight. But yet, still, it got scored a split decision draw. So, for me, you know, it feels like... He was a little bit hard done to in that particular night. And afterwards, and, and looking back on it, he did have a few things to say about it, which I pulled out of a, a great article of an interview of his. So he said he felt crushed. I knew I should have won that, and they took it away from me when they called it a draw. I was like, man, what fight were you all looking at? I always agreed that Ray had won the first fight fair and square. And to be fair to him, when we talked, we agreed I won the second time, and I consider us to be one apiece. It was a personal thing. And it meant a lot because I'd been robbed. We were friends and I respected his opinion. He was not only a great fighter but a great man. And I really wanted to settle the score once and for all. But it wasn't to be. So there was a third fight proposed between these two. And it just never came off obviously. That was a fight that I don't think would have been anywhere near the level of the, the first fight. I mean the second fight is a, it's an entertaining watch to be honest with you. But it's not... The same Sugar Ray Leonard from eight, nine years earlier, of course, and it's not the same Tommy Hearns, but it's still an entertaining watch. I mean, again, people, it depends on your opinion of, of where they were at that time in their career in 1989. They were probably both past the, the primes at this point, so it made it a little bit more entertaining, I suppose, because they wasn't as, as agile and as quick and as the reflexes wasn't as good as they was in the first fight in 1981, but it was still an entertaining one to go and watch. And I'd be interested to hear what other people had to say about this particular fight and, and the scorecards and, and did you feel it was a robbery like we seem to feel it was a robbery because, you know, I certainly feel it was one of them robberies and, and Sugar Ray's openly admitted he felt it was one of them robberies. So that wouldn't be the end, though, for Tommy Hearns. Of course, Tommy Hearns would, would stay on. He'd actually go and defend his WBO Super Middleweight title in his very next fight in 1990 and he would then carry on his career and he would have another great fight. And this, this next fight that I'm going to briefly talk about then, Johnson, is probably the last big significant fight of his career in my eyes personally yeah. where he went and fought Virgil Hill in 1991 on June the 3rd at Caesars Palace and went and won the WBA light heavyweight title. One thing I must say I will thank to the good Lord upstairs. God was in my corner. Virgil Hill is not a man to take lightly. He's a fine 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 boxer and he deserves credit and I must say that Thank you, Lord! We did it again! Detroit, we're coming home! 
Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, Virgil Hill was 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 an excellent fighter as well. Another brilliant fighter at light heavyweight, and and for um for Hearns to go in and fight Hill uh, at light heavyweight, considering he's come all the way from welterweight, it is again, it's just remarkable. A fifth world title, a fifth weight. I mean, I know he had won that light heavyweight title, obviously the WBC a bit earlier. He had a little dabble in there, didn't he, against Denise and Andreas, but. To then go on to fight Virgil, who was a, who was a legitimate light heavyweight world champion. He was, he was a proper an opponent. You know, I mean, he he was an excellent fighter. And 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 Hearns again. This is this is the point, I suppose, where when when I used to think of Tommy Hearns, um, I used to always just think of Tommy as a banger and just a guy that's just going to get rid of fellas. And and the one thing with Tommy is he can box as well. He can box. He can bang. He had everything really. I mean, he had that brilliant jab. And I mean. I suppose with Emmanuel Stewart in his corner, and we we obviously know now, obviously not at the time, people would have seen her as his first real big fighter, wasn't it? So to not re- you couldn't really compare it. You know, as time passes, we can start comparing what Emmanuel Stewart does for certain guys with height and and having that height advantage and a reach advantage. We've seen it with Lennox Lewis, we've seen it with Kalitsko, uh, and you know, it, it was Hearns was no different. I think the only difference between of Klitschko and Lewis, I suppose, when you look at sort of Emmanuel Stewart's career, is the fact that he had a bit of everything, Tommy, and, and I think he proved that again in, against Virgil Hill, that he could box. He was, I don't think he ever got boxed. I mean, even Emmanuel Stewart said he was never outboxed. He was a master boxer, but he could just bang. And I think he proved that. I mean, what a great performance from, from Tommy Earns. And he was just, he'd become the only person to win four world titles in four different weights, and he's only, the only one to ever win five as well. So for, for a long time, as well, I don't know how long it was until someone even surpassed him, but I suppose that next person probably was Manny Pacquiao. But I might be wrong, but, you know, it just shows you Tommy Hearns, albeit he was always considered to be the one that wasn't as great as the other three. But for me, if you're going to, as a complete fighter, I think this fight proved that he had everything. And, and, and even at, in 1990, what was it, 1991, I mean, to be counted for that long, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? And what, what a great performance. I, I can't, again, go back and watch the fight. It is on YouTube. You can watch it and you can just see how great Tommy, Tommy was, even at this ripe old age he was at this point in his career. In his next fight, he would come up against a former foe who he lost to a few years earlier in Aaron Barkley, who he defended his WBA light heavyweight title against. And he lost again to Aaron Barkley on a split decision in 1992. So he was just a guy that he just really couldn't get one over on, who was Aaron Barkley <laughs> throughout his career. It just seemed to be the bit of a bogeyman for him. So obviously, you know, he carries on his career. He has one fight in 93, two in 94, one in 95, one in 96, one in 97. And then 1997, uh, I, I don't actually remember this happening, but he actually appeared in the WWF, or WWE as it's now known. Uh, on the 23rd of June 1997, Hearns appeared on a WWF telecast, performing in a storyline where he was taunted and challenged by a professional wrestler by the name of Brett the Hitman Hart, who claimed Hearns had stole his Hitman nickname. And hers ended up attacking, and I say that in inverted commas, Jim Neidhart and knocking him down with a series of punches before the officials entered the ring and broke up the confrontation. Strangely enough, nothing actually ever came of that. It was like a, a one-off appearance for him at that particular point. You know, a, a bit of a novelty thing, as we know, it's all choreographed. It was just one of them things that they obviously got a bit of attention off the back of with Tommy Hearns. So 
His career hadn't actually finished inside the ring at this point. He actually came over to Manchester in 1999 and actually won a version of the Cruiserweight title, the IBO, which is a lightly regarded world title, if you do still want to class it as that. But he actually won that on April the 10th, 1999, against Nate Miller. I wish I would have known more about Tommy Hearns at that point. I did know a lot. I did know a lot about him, but at that point... I think I was a bit more in and out of boxing and into football and all the rest of it. So that legend of a man had come over to Manchester and fought and won an IBO cruiserweight title. And he speaks about that night very fondly. He said, that was a very enjoyable night for me. I was a little hesitant about coming to Manchester, but it worked out just fine. I took care of the business. I was 40 years old by then and I'd only ever boxed outside of America once when he went over to the Bahamas in 1981. I think it's something every fighter should experience in their career. I was given the opportunity and I was glad I took it. I'm very proud of what I accomplished in the ring. I never really retired and I fought a few times after that. But that was my last great night. Oh, that's amazing that he said that. I mean, that just says something, doesn't it? I, I didn't know. 1999, God, I was just out of school. So, uh, yeah, I definitely didn't... I didn't realise he'd come over here until sort of looking back and, and, and that's impressive. I mean, the RBO... Some people actually consider it a title. I suppose you could say it was his sixth weight. I mean, that's impressive, isn't it? Uh, even before that cruiserweight. By then, I mean, he was well past his best. I mean, the one thing you'll say is, I mean, out of the 15 fight, well, out of the 17 fights, sorry, following the, the robbery against Leonard in the draw, he actually won 15 of them. So, you know, 15 wins out of 17, not bad. I mean, he lost to Barkley again, as you say, his bogeyman. And then after the, the Nate Miller fight, which was in Manchester, he fought uh, Uriri Grant. That was when he lost the IBO Cruiserweight title. He actually broke his leg, apparently. That's why the fight was stopped. I believe he broke his leg in the second round. So that was why, in the end, he had to call it a day. So to break your leg and then obviously come back five years later and fight John Long, who won that fight, and then he fought Shannon Landberg in 2006. Obviously, just wanted to come back and make some money. And he was still banging on about fighting in 2010, I believe. So... It's unbelievable that he even wanted to continue. He probably should have packed it in long before he did. He probably went on a bit too long, a bit like Duran, whereas Hazard and Leonard didn't. But you know, an exceptional career, an exceptional fighter, and one that would always be remembered. And finally, by myself, as I say, it was just a pleasure to watch. A great fighter. Just talking about then the aftermath of his career, and, and, and just looking a little bit into obviously what happened outside of the ring. Him and his family had actually set up their own promotional circuit around Detroit called Hearns Entertainment and they promoted many small hall cards one of them in particular that was most notable was actually Mike Tyson versus Andrew Galotta in 2000 his son Ronald Hearns was also a professional boxer as well most notably competing against the likes of Erislandi Lara and Felix Sturm losing to both of them he didn't have the same career as his father but he did end up becoming a professional boxer and, you know, making a little bit of money out of it, of course. And I think that was that was something that when uh, I look back on and I, I do remember the era of, of Ronald Hearns, his son. I do remember him fighting and competing and just thinking he just wasn't as good as his dad. And, and, and that was just the unfortunate reality of the situation. But when you talked about that fight, about coming back in, in 2010, the reason that fight was spoken about was because he actually ended up going for a few financial issues. He was actually forced to auction off his possessions at the auction block of Detroit in Michigan on April the 3rd, 2010. Items included were a 1957 Chevy, a fountain oh. boat, 
and a slew of collectible memorabilia. His debt to the IRS was just over a quarter of a million dollars. He took responsibility for paying the entire debt, which he said was basically being accrued from being overly generous towards his large extended family. So he just got into debt by basically helping everybody else out by the sounds of it, which, you know, is a bit of a, an, an honourable thing to do, but got himself in a shit ton of debt as a result and ended up having to pay it off, which nearly brought him out of retirement, which would have been an absolute travesty. That was what happened outside of the ring. But let's look at the end of his career accolades and let's look at what he actually achieved in his career. We've had a good hour to sort of go through some of the most notable fights of his career and what's helped him in the titles that he won and that he lost. Let's actually look at what he did in his career. In terms of, of world title fights then, his record is 15-4-1 and one with 9 KO in world title fights. He also oh. amassed a record of 13-15-1 with 8 KOs against former future and current world titleists. Obviously, he won the IBO Cruiserweight Championship, as we, we spoke about as well. And he was actually named Fighter of the Year by the Ring Magazine and the Boxing Writers Association of America in 1980 and 1984. And another little fact for you, in 1994, he was actually named the greatest junior middleweight, super welterweight of all time by the ring. And that was what the poll was that was put out was who yeah. was the who was the best eleven stone fighter and and he came out on top of course in box rec he actually ranks number eighteen in the greatest pound for pound boxers of all time and on June the tenth two thousand and twelve he was inducted into the international boxing hall of fame going back to his career he won six world titles in five weight classes defeating future boxing hall of famers such as pepino Cavas, wilford benitez virgil hill and roberto duran and for me that just sums up what was an absolutely fantastic career and when you think about them fights that we spoke about, the Hagler and the Leonard fights in particular, where he lost them fights, that's not really dampened what he achieved as a fighter. Yeah, they were two of the biggest fights of his career, without a shadow of a doubt. But yet, we still regard him. Most associations, International Boxing Hall of Fame, still regard him as one of the greatest fighters of all time. Yeah, and that's exactly what you just mentioned there, is bang on. I mean, Duran was the only win recorded over... Duran Hagler and Leonard, but he was on the losing side, as you say, two of the greatest fights in the sport. I mean, Hearns Hagler, uh, or Hagler Hearns, however you want to put it, and and Leonard Hearns were, were two of the best fights of all the, the, the Fab Four. One thing you got to remember as well that although you know he was on the losing side of those those particular fights, that virtually those two wins define the careers of Hagler and they define the careers of Leonard. So. It just shows you he may not have got those wins, but in actual fact, with those guys would beating Hearns, that escalated in and, and, and just it pushed them on to another level. So honestly, if I'm going to say anything, the one thing I say about Tommy is that he wasn't a guy that would just slug it out. So he wasn't going to just get in your face and, and throw bombs and you know a bit like a Hagler, a bit like a Duran. Don't get me wrong, they were skillful in terms of what they did, just like Hearns. And, and Leonard was the guy who was more or less on the outside. I know he went on the inside in, in the ball in Montreal and he ended up coming out on, on the losing side. And then when he did box, Durand, Durand fell to pieces. But with Hearns, he had a bit of everything. You know, he, he, I'm going to go back to another football analogy. Now, today, everyone talks about you're a defensive midfielder or you're attacking midfielder. Now, you don't have the, the all-round midfielders anymore. And it's difficult. To, you don't really see the all-round boxers anymore. A guy that can hit with both hands, he can jab. 
he could fight on the outside, he could fight on the inside. And I think Hearns was the guy that did that. And I mean, just looking at a couple of quotes that I've got here, Teddy Brainer, who was a matchmaker turned promoter, he said, forget about Sugar Ray Leonard. The young boxer who most resembles the original Sugar Ray Robinson is this young kid, Hearns. He's tall and slender with knockout power in either hand. And then the only other quote that I got was from Dundee himself on Hearns. And he said, Ray was always going to beat Tommy for one reason only, and that was balance. Some are blessed with it and some aren't. If you give Tommy Ray's balance, he'd probably beat them all. Well, there you go. Can't really argue with Angelo Dundee on that one, can you? Certainly, <laughs> certainly can't. That man was a very smart man. He knew his boxing, of course. So Tommy Hearns ends his career on 67 fights, 61 wins, 48 by way of knockout. Five defeats and one draw on his record. An absolute immense fighter. A fighter that I've really, really enjoyed sitting down to do a career profile on. And I'm sure, as fans, you'll really enjoy listening back to this because I think we've done an extensive coverage of his amateur career and his professional career. And obviously, there's fights where we could have gone into a lot more detail on. And the reason we don't do that is because we do cover them for the Legendary Nights podcast feed as well. So please go and check that out because you will find some of the fights involving some of these career profile-based fighters on that particular feed as well. So it's been an absolute pleasure to cover the career of Tommy the Hitman Hearns in this episode. If you've not already subscribed to the new Careers Profiles podcast feed, please go and check that out and go and give us a rating and a review because it is really helping us get around this new format of all the different series that we run and all their own podcast feeds so we really appreciate all the support that you've been giving us it's truly appreciated you know where we are we're on social media you will be able to find the career profiles on its own twitter account very shortly but in the meantime if you want to go and follow us you can follow us at btr boxing pod on twitter if you want to follow the legendary nights podcast series you can do that by checking that out at legend night pod on there all the ones to watch at ones to watch pod you can find it on there or on facebook at btr boxing podcast check us out on any available podcasting app we're there get rating reviewing and subscribing we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the career profile for tommy the hitman hearns Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.